You know, it was a blessing. Uh, the Easter Resurrection Day Sunday service. Were you here? Services, I should say. Stirring. Uh, Saturday night, uh, then sunrise service, then the services here on Sunday. Uh, Brother John's messages could not have been clearer, I bet you agree, about the evidence for the resurrection and the significant uh, and uh, significance and impact uh, uh, of having a risen Savior. We had many, many visitors, which is our great privilege on Easter, and many, many heard the gospel, and many responded. I don't have the numbers, but perhaps our pastor later will uh, bless us by sharing some of those with us. Now, each number is a person. You know what I mean? It's not numbers. Each number represents a human being whose eternity uh, we hope has been sealed and will be with the Lord Jesus Christ for out, uh, throughout eternity. Resurrection Sunday is a very important day. Uh, in my family, we have two little grandchildren. One is two and one is one. And my uh, daughter-in-law was seeking to explain to the two-year-old what we as believers are getting ready to uh, come together to celebrate the resurrection of a risen Savior. But as you might imagine, that's no easy task to communicate to a two-year-old. How do, you, how do you do this? Well, my daughter-in-law is just uh, brilliant working with kids. And so when we got together uh, after church on Sunday, uh, she decided it would be time for the two-year-old to tell us the Easter story. And so she said, you've got to grade on a curve. The theology isn't exactly perfect, but this is a two-year-old. And so I said, well, Sam, his name is Sam. Tell us, tell us the story of Easter. And he said, um, Jesus got hurt, and then they put him in a grave. But when they went to see how he was, he says, don't worry, I'm okay. And that's the Easter story. It needs a little working, but I mean, for a two-year-old, that's pretty good. And I thought about this, and even though the Lord wasn't there, it was an empty tomb. We'll get to that next year. Uh, still, I think he got it. Jesus was hurt. He was really hurt for one such as you and I so that we could live forevermore. We could live as forgiven people. He was desperately and intensely hurt. He was humiliated. He was uh, publicly displayed. He was made fun of. Uh, he was bloodied. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was rejected, and he was separated from his father, and that was the most excruciating pain of all, I'm sure. He was hurt, but good news. He's okay. He's okay. We serve a risen Savior, and because he's okay, that's why we can say, in spite of all else that may be transpiring in our lives, because he's okay, we are okay. And we are okay because we are in union with him. That's what we read about some time ago in Romans chapter 6. In a way, I don't fully understand, but I know it's true. Upon accepting the Lord Jesus as Savior, we came to be united with him in death and burial and resurrection. So we died to certain things uh, that we did not any longer need to live for, but we were raised to live in newness of life. And based on our identification by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, somehow we share, I don't understand it fully, but I can accept this, somehow we share in his crucifixion and, 
and in his resurrection, and that's why it's okay with us. And we all believed that as Christians at the point of salvation, didn't we? We had almost a two-year-old's childlike faith at that point. In whatever way it was, we heard of the gospel message, and somehow by God's grace it made sense, and we realized we were debtors and lawbreakers and owed a debt we could not pay, and suddenly we realized that's what Jesus did for us as a substitute for our sin, and we realized, my heavens, he had no sin of his own. It was mine that sent him to the cross, and and we realized that nobody crucified him. He did this voluntarily. He could have called upon the legions of heaven uh, to deal with uh, those who were about to impale him on a cross. But he did this because it was the Father's will. This is just how much the Father loved us and wanted to grant us a new life and a pardon and adoption and forgiveness. And, when, and we just were so excited. Do you remember do you remember those days, a point of salvation? We knew it was free and it was of grace. And we knew we could never pay for something like this. We knew we, could, we, we didn't have virtue or merit to deserve anything like this. We knew we were empty. And just as we were, God took us contingent on, her, on our faith in him and, and our expression of, of trust in him. And we were just like a little child. We were so excited and remember, yeah, Jesus was hurt, but he's okay and because I believe in him, I'm okay. And so that leads to this question. What has happened to us? What's happened to our childlike faith? What's happened to the joy of our salvation? Where did it go? Why is it such a challenge for us to sustain it? Maybe even recapture it. It's even a petition made in the Bible. Restore to me the joy. Not my salvation. I have that. Restore to me the joy of my. Make me like a two-year-old who gets the message and who is just so excited about the truth of a crucified, risen Savior. What, what's happened with us? Well, a lot of things, I suppose, could be suggested. I was just thinking maybe this is one. We know we've been saved by grace through faith, but I suppose now we're trying to be sanctified by works. That'll really put a damper on the joy of our salvation. You understand what I mean when I say sanctified? Uh, to be saved, it's almost a legal pronouncement. Uh, God no longer has a case against us. Uh, we've, we've been given a verdict of acquittal, no charge against you because the the Lord Jesus was penalized for our crime against the Father. You see what I mean? So, so there's justification, case dismissed. But then we begin the marvelous adventure being conformed to the image of God. We have a long way to go for sure. But this is God's doing. And I wonder if we accept readily the fact that we're saved by faith, but now we really have to strive, work, labor, toil in order to be sanctified because it's not by grace it's by work. I mean, God did a wonderful work in redeeming me, but now it's up to me to finish what he began. I mean, that could so extinguish the fire, my goodness, because we know we can't do what we're required to do in our own strength. And if I don't have the same measure of God's grace to live the life of a saved person as I had to begin the life of a saved person, well, I just might as well not get out of bed in the morning. I can't pray the way I'm supposed to pray. I don't have a heart for the Bible the way I should. I don't boldly share my faith the way God wants me to. I don't give sacrificially and lovingly the way I ought to. I don't like you the way I should. Ooh, that slipped. 
I can't do these things. And so I wonder if maybe, you know, I wonder if what's happened to many of us is that the Christian life has ceased to be a relationship-oriented life, and it's become a rules-oriented life. It's the relationship with the Lord Jesus that filled us to overflow, that got us so excited that we could not wait to tell people. It was like being wedded in a covenant bond with one who will never let us go. In fact, that's what he said. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It is really, really like romance with the Lord Jesus Christ. We were relationship-oriented, but now, yeah, I mean, we read books, we go to conferences, we listen to sermons, and there's always something in every one of those good things that appeals to our sense of inadequacy and suggests something we have to do, we have to do, we have to do. All good things, good rules, don't get me wrong, but I just wonder if we become a rules-focused group instead of a relationship-focused group, and maybe that accounts for the fact that we've lost the joy of our salvation. Well, chapter 7 in Romans is all about this struggle to live the Christian life victoriously and with joy, with the Lord's help, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 7. And in it, you'll see, I think, the most uh, uh, honest, authentic, revealing, autobiographical statement of the Apostle Paul perhaps the greatest missionary ever to have lived, he's going to pull back the mask of adequacy in this text. And he's going as an apostle credited with writing a number of New Testament books. This very one is about authentically to share with us I, too, struggle in living the Christian life, and my struggle is really, really deep when I think I have to live up to God's standards without Holy Spirit help, when I think I could do it in my own strength. So we're going to find out something about the Apostle Paul maybe we didn't know before. And here's how he begins. He's going to give us... uh, information about a topic we're all familiar with, marriage. But this text really has nothing to do with marriage as the main point. He's going to use marriage, because we're familiar with it, simply as an illustration of what we'll soon see is the main point. So don't get too bogged down in what this is saying about marriage. There are other texts that really focus on marriage as the main point. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think he's using marriage, because everyone here could relate to it in one way or another. I think Paul is saying, you know about marriage, let me use it to teach you something about life. So here we go, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, some say he's only speaking to Jewish brethren here, Jewish believers. I don't agree with that. He's writing to people in Rome, and the congregation or church there was made up of Jews and Gentiles. What does it mean when he says, I'm writing to you who know or are familiar with the law? Well, the Jews were familiar with the law, which came from God through Moses, but the Gentile believers were very much familiar with the law of Rome. They were familiar with the law of the land. Everyone is familiar with the law. We know about laws. Law says do this, don't do that. If you do this, 
uh, it's, you're a lawbreaker. If you don't do this, you're a lawbreaker. We know about the laws. Paul is saying, I'm writing to you who are fully aware of the laws of the land. And then he says, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Do you agree with that? Don't you think Paul is a wonderful teacher? Of course. The law has jurisdiction as long as the person under it is alive. Look, I have a brother-in-law who passed away a few months ago. Uh, Subsequent to his passing, my sister, his widowed wife, got a phone call from a public library in their area in Florida. And the librarian was calling to speak to and she named my brother-in-law's name. Is so-and-so there? Well, he's not there. And uh, uh, she said, but the reason I'm calling is because he has an overdue library book. And uh, it's like a penalty of about $1.35. Well, I got to tell you something. That did not affect my brother-in-law at all. The law of the library had no jurisdiction over him. And when my sister persuaded the librarian that it's not coming from him. It's just not going to work that way. Uh, She backed off, uh, even realizing what Paul said here. The law only has jurisdiction over a person for as long as he lives. And then Paul says, in keeping with this, see, the married woman is bound to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then, If while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. We all agree with that, right? Couple is married. You're supposed to stay faithful to one another. If the husband dies, the woman is free to remarry. But if she does that prematurely, that's a no-no. So you can't do that. So that's the illustration. And now the application, it's in verse 4. Therefore, first the illustration, first three verses, now the application. Therefore, my brethren, you also. So it's not about marriage, you see. He's just using that as an illustration. You also were made to die to the law. In the illustration, the husband died, and that set the woman free. Here, Paul is saying, and you died. Brethren, Christians, you died. How did you die? Well, you died through the body of Christ. It's what I spoke about earlier. It was in Romans chapter 6. When we accept Christ, we are united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We could say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we died to the law. The law did not die. Why? Well, it's, it's of God. It's good. It has eternal ramifications. The law doesn't die. I die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, what does it mean to die to the law? Does it mean that we as Christians are free from rules and uh, obligations and principles and the laws of God, biblical laws of God? Does it mean we should have nothing to do with those? We're, we're free in the sense that we could walk away and ignore all those? Absolutely not. We don't want to do that because the laws of God reflect the moral character of God. They are good. So to die to the law doesn't mean to ignore it. It means we no longer look to the law, even the law of God, 
as the means of our salvation. We know that the laws, though they be good, when put in partnership with me, not so good, the law cannot accomplish my salvation. The law does not empower me to do the will of God. The law doesn't even give me a desire to do the will of God. I have no argument with the law. There's something wrong with me. So to die to the law means I'm not looking to clean up my act anymore, make a New Year's resolution, live by a moral ethical code. I'm no longer uh, um, um, uh, energized to do that because I realize I'm going to fail by it. I'm free from any code of ethics and so on as the means of salvation because I have found the Means of salvation is through faith in the Savior who suffered and died for me. So that's what it means to die to the law. Now, why did this happen? It says here, so that you might be joined to another. You see, I have to die. I was married, if you will, to the law. The law is self-effort, good works, clean up your own act. I died to that. And, and I was raised from it in my union with Christ, who also rose from the dead. And why did this happen? So that I could be wedded to another, not the law, but the Lord. And what's the purpose? Well, it says right here, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I can't bear fruit by trying to clean up my own act, by trying to live to a code of ethics, rules, even God's perfect law. I can't bear fruit. I need God to inhabit me in the person of his very own spirit. I need him to change me from the inside out. I need him to change my mind, my values, my perspectives. I need him to empower me. I don't have that from the law. And I need him to do that in order that I could bear fruit for him. And then it says in verse 5, See, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. It's as if the law energized our very sinful nature. It's as if the law gave impetus to my inclination to sin. It's like this. You tell a child to lay off the cookies you just made during the day and which you are reserving for dinner guests at night. You tell a young child they're not for you, they're for the guest, and I guarantee that child's interest in those cookies is going to be exponentially increased. There's something about rules that bring out, not the worst in us, that bring out who we really are. Just say no, and I want to do the thing you told me not to do. I was riding my bike just last night. Not, not, not a... Uh, a uh, motorbike, just a, a bike, a pedal bike. And I was riding near Pearland High School and uh, sort of daydreaming, just thinking about stuff. And there was, there's a little footbridge, a wooden footbridge that takes you from the sidewalk over a little depression uh, and you can cross over it to get onto the athletic fields at Pearland High School. And I noticed they had a piece of tape, y you know, like that crime scene tape, the 
yellow tape. They had it over here on this side of the bridge and then the other side of the bridge. And I, why'd they do that? And I stopped and, and I looked and I saw, oh, I see, because they just put a new coat of paint on the wood slats. Well, I'm ashamed to tell you, <laughs> I didn't do, I didn't do it, but I was just thinking, are you kidding me? Tape's not going to keep people off of that. Are you, can you put your footprint in that tape? It would be like a permanent thing. You go ride by every night. That's my footprint, right? I was just thinking about all the, you know, what's the big deal? I'm not doing, I was just, and I thought to myself, for crying out loud, I'm just, I'm the guy spoken of in Romans chapter 7. That tape is a good rule. Come on, let the paint dry. People work hard at it. They want to pretty up the bridge. And some knucklehead like me, is, is, is wanting to put his footprint in the... Th but I mean, I felt... Oh, good night, my picture's in Romans chapter 7. The rule, don't you see? It brought out the, the, the worst in me. It brought out... It accentuated my sinful inclinations. Have you heard of a guy named Augustine, St. Augustine? He was uh, quite a theologian of old. He was grappling with this kind of thing. He tells the story about when he was a teenager, had some teenage friends, and he and his friends saw a pear tree growing uh, in this schoolyard, and they decided to get the pears off it. So they went back late one night. They climbed over a wall, got into this private garden. They were not supposed to be there, and they plucked all these pears off of the tree, and they went down uh, the, the road in their community and they just took the pears and smashed them against houses and walls and all this kind of stuff and later Augustine was reflecting on this he was really disturbed uh, by what he had done and, and the reason is he wondered why he did this because they didn't eat the pears they didn't even sell them for some kind of profit they simply stripped the tree of the pears for the sole purpose of smashing them against stuff and he wondered why in the world did he did he steal this stuff for that reason? And his conclusion was that he did it for the sheer joy of sinning. One of the greatest theologians ever to live just verified what the greatest missionary who ever lived, maybe the greatest apostle Paul is telling us right here. I cannot please God by the doing of the law. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there's something really wrong with me for crying out loud. It's just the joy of sinning. That is my problem. He realized, Augustine did, that because of sin in him, the commandment, thou shalt not steal, actually was aroused. The commandment actually aroused his inclination to break it. Well, I can't find fault with the commandment. Uh, the fault is with, with me. And so Augustine was, was disgusted with what he had learned about himself. He thought better of himself. Uh, but he just found out, no, he's a sinner. He's a lawbreaker. And, and the, the law, in essence, shouted out to his sinful nature, don't! That's what the law said to him. Augustine, don't! <laughs> but, 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 but the law couldn't quench his desire to sin. In fact, it, it aroused, it energized that very thing. And then Paul says in verse 6, I love these first two words, but now, oh, I just love that, that's hopeful contrast. But now, there's another way, but now we have been released from those. It's like a military discharge. You know, guys, gals who've served in the military, when you get your discharge paper, oh, my goodness, you're just, it's like a burden. You know, no one has authority over you. Your drill sergeant can't tell you what to do anymore. It's, it's, we've been really, I got a discharge from the law. How? Having died to that by which we were bound. So that's back to our illustration. We died to the law. We're not wedded to it anymore. It has no jurisdiction over us now that we are 
united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what's the result? So that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let me illustrate this. This is some deep stuff. Let me illustrate it. When I was a new Christian, I was in a small country church outside a military base uh, where I first heard the gospel and came to know the Lord. And the guy who led us to the Lord would bring a bunch of us guys to this small country church, and we were just trying to figure out how to do church, what it's all about, how do you stand, how do you sit, how do you sing, you know, all that stuff. Well, on one Sunday, they had a guest speaker, and I found out the guest speaker was called a missionary. I did not know what that meant. This was an American missionary who said he felt the Lord leading him to a place called Australia. Australia. Never been there. I knew they have kangaroos and stuff. That's all I knew. And this guy from perfectly sane guy somehow said he felt God called him to go to Australia. And his wife was there. And they showed us pictures of their kids. They had to leave them back in Australia. And they came uh, to speak in churches like the one I, I, I was attending. And then there came to be an opportunity to support that missionary in Australia. I, I thought it was unbelievable. Do you mean I can stay right where I am? And through the mere use of something as foolish as money, I could have a hand in what that guy's doing in Australia? Wow, what a deal that is. And I just felt from the inside out a strong inclination to support that missionary. And I did for years and years and years uh, after that. Nobody twisted my arm. Nobody made me feel bad. I was not motivated by guilt or sense of obligation. It was God in me. It was that relationship in which, upon my invitation, <laughs> he took up his abode in my life and changed me. You don't just, you don't do this with your money. You hang on to it so you can buy stuff. I knew about that. What was happening inside of me? I did not understand scriptural principles of giving or anything. I was a new believer. I didn't know where to find any verses of scripture on the subject. I didn't really even know that's something we're invited to do as a privilege. I didn't know about any of that. Uh, if you mentioned tithing to me, I don't know what you're talking about. I knew, I knew nothing. I just knew, not based on externally imposed rules, and in my background as a Jewish guy, we have a million of them. Tons of externally imposed rules. It was none of that that motivated me. It was God in me who moved me to contribute to this man's support. And uh, that got me going on a giving program, and I never stopped. Again, I, it, it wasn't robot-like. It wasn't ritualized. It wasn't mechanical. Frankly, it wasn't a rigid percentage. It wasn't. It was that New Testament principle, which I found later. Give joyously. Give at a as a grateful heart you see it was not rules bound it was relationship bound good night this jesus wedded me this jesus took me warts and all this jesus didn't require anything of me he took me broken and sinful as could be and said i'll have you just the way you are change you from the inside and then what's more he said i'll never Leave you or forsake. He said, we're family now. I've adopted you into my family. Now treat me with respect. For sure, I'm your Lord. But we're family. He did all this. And he said, in so many words, you'll never find love the likes of which I'm willing to love you because my love will come to you without condition. You can't find that even in earthly marriages. You can't. Now, maybe from my dogs. My, have I told you about my dogs? But, 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 
But, but, but, but the Lord Jesus said, my love for you is without condition. And that kind of relationship so stirred me up, I would have busted if I didn't have some means of saying thank you. I really appreciate all you've done. And God gave me the simplest way to do it. He said, why don't you give back? some of what I've given you. And by the way, I've given you everything you have. You didn't really earn anything. I've given you everything. Why don't you give some of it back to share in what pleases me as I work my plan of redemption throughout the world? And I have never struggled with giving since then because it's not a have to that motivates me to give. It's a want to. It's a want to. Have you discovered stuff like that? Folks, if so, you are serving the Lord and submitting to him, not as a have to, but as a want to. And you've not lost the joy of your salvation because your life in Christ is not rules oriented. It is relationship oriented. You're serving now, don't you see, in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The Old Testament letter said you will on this day give this percentage, boom, boom, boom. But the newness of the Spirit says, how do you want to show God you love him and appreciate him? What's the dollar amount that will most help you non-verbally to express to God you are grateful for what he's done for you? You work it out. That's newness of the Spirit, don't you see? Folks, we get no enablement to do the works of God from the law of God. Isn't that something? We don't get any enablement to do it. It doesn't empower us to do what we ought to do. In fact, someone wrote this. Do this and live. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. I don't need to be told what to do. I know what to do. I need power to do it. The gospel not only tells me to fly, it gives me the wings to fly. Folks, we got saved by God's grace. We can't be sanctified by any other way. It's the relationship that has to be the focus. When was the last time you spent a lot of time with the Lord? Are you in his word regularly? Are you praying? Are you in a romance with the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, you're trying to squeeze out obedience in the flesh, and it won't work. It won't the law of God was an external code given to my people by Moses. It was inscribed on stone tablets. Did it change their lives? I'm sad to tell you, it did not. My people are a grand, sad illustration of the mere possession of the law of God cannot transform the heart. Most of my people are stiff-necked with uncircumcised hearts and reject the grace of their own Messiah. Now, don't give up on my people. The whole story has not been told just yet. We'll get to that in Romans 11. But, 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 but my people are a good example. We've had the law of God, and it has not changed our hearts. But now things are different. The law of God is not an external code inscribed on tablets it is a law of love inscribed on our hearts. So the motivation comes not from without, but from within to do the things of God. In our former marriage, if you will, to the law, we did only that which would meet 
the minimum requirements of God. We did stuff like go to church on Christmas and Easter. We had great numbers on Easter. I do not minimize it, nor should any of us. But I would be quite pleasantly surprised if we sustained those numbers the Sunday after Easter. Why? Because most people <laughs> know they ought to. Being a church, giving worship to the creator of the universe, but they satisfy what they think to be the bare minimum standards <laughs> of external rules and requirements, Christmas and Easter. But when the law of God is inscribed on your heart, when, when your life is relationship-driven, you don't want to satisfy the minimum requirements of what is pleasing to God. You want to say, oh, God, help me to please you more and more and more and more and more. It's different. It's an entirely different motivation. Now you no longer live by a, an externally imposed system of do's and don'ts. You want to do that which is pleasing to God. He has implanted his spirit in your very life. You're being changed and transformed. Listen to me. If I'm speaking to you and you're not getting this, you may not be saved. And I do not want to cause anyone to doubt unless I could. If I could make you doubt, maybe you ought to doubt. You cannot succeed in causing me to doubt my salvation. I dare you. I'll tell you why. I have evidence of the presence of the Savior inside of me. You must too. I was in the military a million years ago. I was playing basketball, <coughs> and I used the Lord's name in vain. I was a brand-new Christian. I didn't know about stuff. It was a basketball game. You're supposed to win. Uh, some guy did something he shouldn't do, and I said something I shouldn't say, using the Lord's name in vain. <gasps> There was no Baptist preacher or anybody around to say thou shalt not. <laughs> but there might as well have been because I felt something like it was a megaphone. I did not hear the voice of God audibly. Why? Because he didn't have to do that. It was his spirit in me who I so grieved. I was made miserable. It was like, ooh, it was like I got punched in the stomach. So you know what I did? I did it again later in the game. And as far as I could tell, that's the last time I used the Lord's name in vain, over 40 years ago. But, 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 but I didn't set my mind to it. I, it's not a rule that, that I'm clinging, focusing on every day. Today, I don't want to use the Lord's name in vain. Today, I, don't want to. I, I didn't go to uh, some, 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 some group therapy, uh, you know, use, using the Lord's name in vain, anonymous. I, I didn't do... I didn't want to use the Lord's name in vain. That was very disturbing to him, and he helped me to see it by disturbing me. And so I asked him to help me. Please, God, help me never to do that again. But with all that motivation, that had nothing to do with rules. It had to do with relationship. Someone said to me the other day, Stuart, when did you get to be so religious? I was disgusted. I'm not religious. I'm wedded to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in a relationship that will not let me go. I'm in a romance. I'm not jumping through religious circles, ritualized, non-thinking, mechanistic, robot-like. Here I am. Do it. It's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. 
Our obedience to Christ is not to be that of a slave fearing a master. It's to be that of a bride wanting to please the bridegroom. It's a big difference. To be under law means we must do something for God. To be under grace means God has done everything for us. And in response, we want to obey him. We want to obey him. Now, Paul anticipates the critics. He's smart, Paul. He says, you know, I've been doing all this talk. I know what critics are going to say. They say, oh, I knew we knew this about you, Paul, and you Christians. You're just lawless people. Have you ever heard the word antinomianism? It's a big, means against the law. You people are against the law. That's what it is with you Christians, all this grace stuff. You just want to sin more and more, give God a chance to be gracious to you. You don't want to live by law. That's what you're saying, Paul, aren't you? He anticipates this and responds in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He answers the question, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. He talks about one of the good benefits of the law here. I was on Pearland Parkway the other day. And a guy flew by me. Now, I don't drive fast. I mean, Kaki knows this. <laughs> I drive slow. But this person was exceeding. This he was like 35. This person was going, I'd say, maybe 50. And one of Pearland's finest pulled him over. <laughs> That's really good. Now, I knew that person was speeding. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I think that person knew he was speeding, too. But the sign that said 35 mile an hour speed limit removed all doubt and debate. There was no argument this person could pose with, I clocked you at whatever. And the sign says, boom. That's what the law does. It removes all debate. The law makes us responsible for not living by it. There is no argument. There is no excuse. Forget about your defense eternity. You done did it. Now, how do you know you're a lawbreaker? Because there's a law, you just broke. Now, Paul says, this happened to me, Paul said that, with regard to coveting. <clears throat> Interesting. Thou shalt not covet is the tenth of the ten commandments. There's other commandments, right? Why didn't Paul say, uh, why didn't he use this as an illustration, don't, kill, don't murder, don't uh, lie, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Why didn't he do that? Because coveting is an inside thing. Listen to me. When you steal something that's not yours, you don't really need a big neon sign that says you've done wrong. You know this. But coveting, that's to have a, a, a desire for something that, or someone that cannot be righteously and rightfully yours. Well, that's every one of us. That's an internal thing. Paul said, I wouldn't have known about that unless there was a law that says thou shalt not covet. So Paul is saying, stop it, critics. We're not minimizing the law. It cannot save us for sure, but it does something leading to our salvation. It shows us we're lawbreakers in need of a Savior. The law, Paul says, is like a mirror. It showed me what I really look like. I thought I was better, but it showed me what I look like to God. I look like a lawbreaker who needs God's mercy and forgiveness. That's what Paul's talking about. And you know what he says? Not only can the law not save me, it messes me up. Look, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. 
God's commandments meant to produce holiness and happiness do anything but bring us happiness. Actually, when uh, partnered with a sinner, they really enhance our sense of being sinful. We have an increasing knowledge of the fact that we break God's laws. Verse 10, this commandment, which to, was to result in life, it proved to result in death to me. You walk around feeling guilty and ashamed all the time. That extinguishes the fire for crying out loud. That's why none of us like to hang around people who are eating healthy. Let's face it. They just remind us that we ought to as well, but we don't. Folks, a Christian who has lost his or her first love, that's the Lord Jesus, and who has become rules-oriented, is miserable and probably also mean. Some of the meanest Christians I ever met are folks who are living by an externally imposed set of rules and do's and don'ts. They are some of the great, most graceless Christians I've ever seen. I would be too. I would be too. A Christian can forget the grace of God and can try to please God by living by a system of Do's and don'ts, and that Christian would be quite miserable. That would be a miserable Christian. It happened to Paul. Because he doesn't want it to happen to us, under inspiration, he bears his soul like I've never seen in the next verses. I'll pick up the pace. Verse 15, what I'm doing, I don't understand. That's what the greatest apostle, look at that. What I'm doing, I don't, is this honest or what? What I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Years ago, uh, my son Grant was in our living room lying on the couch watching TV. My oldest son, Tim, walked by and smacked him on the head. I saw. Tim, said I, why did you do that? Tim said, I don't know, Dad. <laughs> I think he gave me an honest answer. He did not know what motivated him out of the blue to smack his brother on the head. Tim just discovered he's confused about his motivations. He did not wake up in the morning planning to whack his brother. There's the head, there's the hand, seemed like a good idea. Tim just discovered there's something inside of him contrary to what his mind tells him is right to do. His behavior was blatantly inconsistent with, with, with what his mind, his aspiration to be good was absolutely at war with his actions. I'm confused. Why do I do that? It's just what Paul said. I don't know why I do that. And then verse 16, Paul says, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it. Sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. See, for the good I want to do, I don't do. I practice the very evil I don't want to do. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my memory. This is why no moral code can ever shape us up. 
I'm not arguing with moral codes. Bring them on. But they can never transform us because it's like a war. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. What's wrong with me? Plenty. All have sinned. I have a sin nature. You know what Paul does now? He just cries out in verse 24. I can hear him. Can you? Wretched man that I am. That's what he says. You know, the word wretched sounds like what it is. It doesn't even sound good. Wretch. It doesn't even sound good. Wretched man. <coughs> I'm exhausted, he says. I'm a laborer exhausted by his unending labors. Wretched man that I am. And then he says something that is about lead him to lead him, that is about ready to lead him to victory again and the restoration of the joys of his salvation. He says, who will set me free? Notice. He doesn't say, what will set me free? He says, who will set me free? He, he doesn't say, what must I do to be free? He said, who will set me free? The minute he cries with reference to a who, he finds the path to victory. He calls upon Christ Jesus for help. From what? Who will set me free from the body of this death? There was a Roman poet named Virgil. Have you heard of him? Virgil Poet. I bring him up because what he wrote is probably what Paul and the readers in Rome were quite familiar with. Virgil's poetry was in existence at this time. And uh, in one of his poems, Virgil tells the story of a cruel master who would take his subjects who he didn't like to punish them. He would um, tie them face to face with um, people who have been killed in battle. He would tie a living citizen who he hated to a dead body. Uh, they would be face to face. Uh, the living violator of the king's standards would be tied to a decomposing corpse. A body, literally a body of death. And this would continue until the living one himself or herself died. Can you imagine this? And, and, and Virgil wrote in ancient poetry, the living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand in hand till choked with stench in loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. I wonder if that's what Paul was alluding to when he said, I'm a wretch. Who can set me free from this body of death? What's he referring to? His sin nature. This terrible, terrible battle between what he ought to do and what he is prone to do. Who will set me free? And then suddenly Paul reestablished victory in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He comes to the conclusion that it's only a relationship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ, that could enable him not only to be saved, but to be sanctified, to live as a saved person. Only a vibrant living relationship with a living Savior could enable Paul to do that. He would like to serve the law of God, but his flesh causes him to serve the law of sin. But the Lord Jesus turns all that around from the inside out. The Spirit of God is the one who could make victory and transformation possible. We'll see more about this, Lord willing, when we get to Romans chapter 8. 
Do you remember a man named John Newton? He probably, he wrote what is probably the hymn most people around the world are familiar with, Amazing Grace. You know the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that did what? A wretch! Same word, like me. Once I was blind, lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I want to ask you, my fellow Christians, can you see the Lord Jesus? With outstretched arms, impaled on a cross, suffering humiliation, shame, and intense pain, dying a death by asphyxiation, and all along saying to the Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you see his nail-pierced, outstretched arms about ready to embrace you in a hug that will not let you go, contingent on you giving him permission to do so? Can you see the Lord Jesus saying to you, I know you, I forgive you, I have plans for you. I will take up my abode in your life. I'm pleased to call you part of the bride of Christ, I being your heavenly husband. In fact, I'm going to a place right now. I live to pray for you. I'm interceding on your behalf. There is no case against you that can be brought by the evil one or anyone. I, I argue your case to the Father. You're guilty for sure. But I tell the Father, but Father, I paid the penalty for that one sin. The Father says, case dismissed. I'm preparing a place in heaven for you. You'll be with me for I can't wait till we consummate our relationship. Why I'm preparing a supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm the Lamb. You'll never need to know me as ravenous lion of Judah if you know me as Lamb of God. Can you see him as the one who has his eye upon you? who knows everything about you, who sees your end from the beginning, who's taken by surprise, but nothing that comes your way, who has the capacity to use all things, even deeply painful things for your good. Can you see him to be the one who desires to conform you and I to his image? He's not ashamed to be in identity, uh, identification with us. In fact, he loves the connection. He wants to make us to be more and more like him. Can you see him as the one who says, I desire my time with you. Don't drift from me. I love it when you talk to me. You can come to me with complaint and with anger and with anything. I know your heart. I, 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 I will never forsake you. Or... <laughs> Once you were blind, but can you see him that way? You have to see him that way in order for there to be a joyful salvation experience. You have to see him that way in order for you to be rightly motivated so as to submit and serve him. Listen, some of us, Lord willing, are going to go to Israel, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. <clears throat> I have a plan. I want to go to Israel. I want to bring back some things for my grandkids. Well, you can understand that. That's, that's normal. That's kind of like an unwritten rule of grandparenthood, right? You would do the same thing. You want maybe something for the kids, but especially the grandkids. You know, you want to do this. And even though I know that's protocol and that's a understandable practice and a principle of grandparents, that has nothing to do with my motivation to bring them back a gift. I love those kids. I can't wait to find something that I think will be pleasing to them. They didn't ask me for it. They don't have to deserve it. There's no written code that's telling me to do it. I want to do it because of the love relationship. Folks, that's the only way to live the Christian life. If you are motivated in any other way, you have not been fully good newsed. You're still under the law. The Bible says, for the love of Christ, his love towards us, that's what controls us. It's not the imposition of fear or external code of ethics. It's the love relationship that's supposed to bring out from us more than the law ever, ever, ever could do. Folks, I beseech you, <coughs> develop the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
develop the relationship? Are you spending time with him regularly? Did you meet with him today? <laughs> Do you listen to him when you read in his words? Let him speak to you. Do you thank him like crazy? He just delights in his kids being grateful. Do you talk to him or you just think about stuff? <laughs> Do you share your thoughts with him instead of worrying about it? <laughs> Do you look for opportunities to please him and glorify him during the day? Folks, if that relationship is not developed, then what we're rendering to the Lord, Lord is a labor, but it's not a labor of love. And if it's not a labor of love, I don't think it impresses him. He doesn't want our response to him to be coerced. He doesn't want it to be a have to. He wants it to be a want to. Folks, he's the one who loves us most. And on that basis, he wants us to serve and submit to him. May he restore to each of us, who've become a little too rules-oriented, may he restore to each of us the joy of, of our salvation. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. Would you restore to us the joy of salvation? It has ramifications, because I think people are watching to us. Well, Lord, that's the theme of our church, to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. No, God, if they could see us more thrilled about the relationship with you, more joyous, more focused on it, more enveloped by it. They would see more, wouldn't they, about your presence and reality in our lives and what you have for them. Oh, God, I pray <clears throat> you would so fill us with your spirit that what comes out is attributable to your presence in our lives, not an externally imposed code of ethics. No, God, we are not in any way minimizing the beauty and value of your laws and moral precepts. But, oh, God, we can't be saved by those. We can't be pleased, please you by trying to live by those things. We need you to bear fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control. Oh, God, are we quenching your Spirit in us? Are we trying too hard in the flesh? Are we quenching the Spirit in so doing? Would you restore the joy of salvation? Oh, God, thank you that if we do not do one thing pleasing to you, you will still never let us go. What a motivation, oh, God, for us to live as servants in submission to you, constrained by your love, and your love is meant to cast out fear. Oh, God, we do not fear you. We love you. Restore the joy of our salvation so that it shows, so that people ask questions, so that we can explain to them about the hope within us. This we pray in your name, our beloved Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.